Well, friends, we have a show for you today. It's a tough subject, but there is some really good healing stuff also to be discussed. And we have a special guest, Dr. Brad Kelly. Brad Kelly was briefly colleagues with me at Colorado Christian University, uh, but then in 2004, he took a position at Point Loma Nazarene University. Point Loma is just down the road from where I'm sitting right now, and it is a beautiful campus in a beautiful part of the country. He is professor of Old Testament and Hebrew, and his academic work focuses on the Old Testament prophets, warfare and ancient Israel, trauma studies, moral injury, and the history of ancient Israel and Judah. Now, I found out that he was onto this moral injury theme after I was researching it, following some shows that we've had. We've been talking about moral injury on this show, but he is really going to help us understand how it connects with all sorts of aspects of life, but in particular, the narratives of the Christian Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And he has recently published a book. This book is called The Bible and Moral Injury, Reading Scripture, alongside War's Unseen Wounds. That's with Abingdon Press in 2020. He's also got some other stuff that we'll talk about on the show. Uh, we will link to all of the sources that we talk about, and we will link to his work on our show notes at protectyournoggin.org. Make sure you check that out. Now, after about three quarters of the way through on this show, you'll find that we take a break, and then we come back for a very specialized conversation. It's not for everybody, so feel free to jump on off the train there at that point. But if you are a student who is interested in perhaps a career in biblical studies or theology, and you're not sure whether or not that's going to be something that is viable for you in our current you know, economic climate, one that has put a lot of pressure on small liberal arts colleges in particular. We're going to talk about ways in which you should be thinking about that sort of career, where you should go to grad school, how you should network. Uh, we've just got some tips, some professional tips for those of you interested in that sort of thing. We will joke around uh, at that point, though, and call it, uh, you know, Drs. Mallinson and Kelly crush your dreams. Well, we're not really going to leave you there. There are some great challenges in the field, but there are also some great opportunities, and it's always important to consider whether or not your passions align with your work life. So do stick around for that if that's something important to you. Otherwise, we're going to talk about moral injury in the Bible, some aspects of it related to forgiveness and restoration and healing and ritual. It's going to be a lot of uh, good stuff to think about. Let's go. All ahead, one third. All ahead, one third. Aye, aye. Stand by to dive. Diving stations. Dive. Dive. Welcome, friends, to the Protect Your Noggin podcast. We offer lessons in outfoxing religious wolves. And sometimes we will address emotionally difficult subjects. So make sure you pay careful attention to our descriptions of each of the episodes. And then also have some resources handy, such as the Crisis Text Line. That's one of our favorites, which is 741-741. That's 741-741. Now, just take a deep breath because we're not afraid to go deep. But don't worry, because we'll also have some fun along the way. Our plan is to help us all resurface with insights and tools to help heal ourselves and our communities. So come along, because we got this. Three, zero, three. Right, right. Three, zero, three. All ahead, 
you doing, my man? Hey, man, it is so good to reconnect with you. Yeah, just hearing you list off those topics, I'm like, I'm the happy fun guy that writes on all the terrible <laughs> stuff. Uh, but, you know, it is what it is. I think someone famous said that recently. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, man, it is so good to reconnect with you, even in this way. And uh, it's so funny to just be down the road from you now. I mean, uh, after... You know, we're back in Denver a while, and then we'd go separate ways, and now you're just what ninety miles maybe up the road from uh, from San Diego. So uh, yeah, yeah I really uh, really appreciate this, and I just want to say first, uh, I, if I can, I just want to give a shout out to you and your work, and I, and I guess probably also your wife. I think is pretty involved in this. Oh movie, yeah, but uh, just yep. I've, I've listened to a couple of the podcasts, just getting ready for today, and uh, just. I love what you're doing here and uh, and the way you're doing it and uh, what you're talking about. So, uh, yeah, I just want to give you give you some props for for doing some really good work and some some difficult days. And and thanks for having me on. I, I really appreciate oh, yeah. uh, the chance always to talk about, uh, in my case, kind of the, the Bible and uh, and moral injury and trauma and stuff related to that. So, uh, yeah, appreciate the opportunity, man. One of the first things I heard you said uh, when I first met you, you said, that if the Bible was a movie, your mama wouldn't let you watch it. <laughs> and meanwhile, you also were a, uh, a huge fan, and I think still are a huge fan, of the kind of uh, theatrical violence, maybe, of professional wrestling. Ah, so yes. uh, that said, you, I, I, don't, I don't think that you are a, a very hawkish gentleman. You're not a, a glorifier of violence. But your whole life seems to have been drawn in some ways, whether it's in the Hebrew Bible or through, you know, world wrestling, to these violent storylines. Can you explain this? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, the WWE stuff. Actually, as we record this, I'm wearing a vintage World Championship Wrestling Goldberg shirt. So if that puts any uh, any framework <laughs> around. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think, to be honest, the wrestling stuff probably came from the fact that although I live in San Diego, I grew up in Georgia. Uh, so, uh, you know, there, there's a certain something that uh, comes along with uh, NASCAR and, and pickup trucks and whatnot. Um, so I think I came by that just honestly. Uh, but mm -hmm. yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. I think to a certain extent, um, to a certain extent, I think I, I never, as you suggested, and I think this is probably true for a lot of people, I never uh, I never set out for this to be sort of my my agenda of work within uh, Old Testament studies, uh, at least at the beginning. Um, and yet I think it was only natural in that, uh, you know, I came up through the church and through the uh, kind of Christian education circuit, uh, and then ended up in those places. And so I, I kind of operated without with a sense of, of wanting to help people see the importance of particularly the Old Testament. Uh, and then, you know, when you start doing that, it's, it's not very long after that, that you start realizing the, the places that are problematic uh, in, in the text uh, mm. for people. Uh, and these are people that you want to take the Old Testament seriously. And so you pretty quickly say, well, what, are, you know, what, are, what are we going to do with, you know, these parts that are that are problematic. And so I think, I think part of it was just born out of that genuine interest of saying, you know, these are, there's some things that really need to be talked about and uh, not that we have answers for them, but just at least they need to be talked about. Uh, if we want to ask people, uh, especially inside the church, for example, uh, to take these texts uh, seriously. So I, I think I got into it more so from, from wanting to help perhaps myself first uh, and then others. Uh, but I think the other piece for me is just, uh, is context related. I mean, as you look at, 
the world we live in. And, and, and this is certainly true. I mean, you and I were in Denver together uh, in 2003, so just slightly after uh, the events of, of 9-11 and, and the way the world, world was, was changing, uh, and both uh, due to those events and the United States' uh, response to those events. And so I think uh, part of it, too, was just recognizing that uh, this is a world that is filled with uh, all kinds of violence uh, in various ways, and uh, that the Bible in some ways uh, reflects that and in some ways speaks to that. Um, in some ways, it affirms the, uh, the suffering of, of those who have, who have suffered violence, and in other ways, it you know, has been used to perpetuate some of that violence. So I think it's just a conversation that is in some ways inherent uh, within these texts. So I think, so part of it was text-based, but part of it was context and just sort of real life-based uh, uh, as a way to, to get into it, uh, you know, to, to it as well, I think. Yeah, I didn't, it, you know, it's been so long, I forgot that that really was in, you know, the Academy, the, one of the most important themes. I remember, you know, in the American yeah. Academy of Religion, almost all of the, 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 there's a panel, I think, in that same year, in yeah. 2003, uh, I was doing with a, a Latin American group uh, in, in relationship to violence and the myths of cosmic violence. But, you know, we're, we're kind of now numbed to it in a way, because... Yeah. A lot of that conflict has been going on, but, you know, at the time, right, the Society of Biblical Literature mm-hmm. and uh, the American Academy of Religion were meeting together, and that was a common conversation, and it seems like it's unfortunately not easy to to shake that. You know, it's still before us. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think maybe your listeners would, would be interested to know, or maybe they do know, just how much context, and I think rightly so, um, guides our engagement with these texts and with other matters, uh, theological and religious. Uh, You know, two things came out of that to get into this whole, why did I get into trauma and moral injury with Mm -hmm. regard to the Bible? I mean, one thing also in Denver, um, right there, 2003 was about, what, 10 years maybe on from the Columbine High School shooting, uh, which was, of course, right right down the road uh, from from where we were in Denver. Uh, And, and, you know, now we thought school shooting. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, right. I can't remember how many there were just recently, but but that one felt different. It was newer. It was all these things. Um, And so that element was there. And then, yeah. uh, you know, the way these things often happen, and, uh, and I think this is true, just good for people who are considering this line of work or coming into it or out of it to think about. It's also through colleagues. I mean, uh, it was uh, right when uh, a, a mutual friend that you and I both had named Frank Ames, who's since, yeah. uh, who's since passed, uh, passed away. Uh, but he was the one, actually, who, when I first got to Denver in 2003, uh, was working actually for the Society of Biblical Literature and said, we need a unit on violence yeah. and warfare. And, uh, gotcha. and so <laughs> basically out of that was, was born, you know, this unit that ran for about 10 years. We published three volumes out of it and uh, all kinds of stuff. So, I mean, I think part of it too is just where you are and, and really trying to connect what, not, not, not being afraid to connect what you're doing and, and how you are working on whether it's biblical text or theology, or whatever, with uh, the experiences of of the context and the world where you are. Um, that that's important. Yeah, that's really good advice. And 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 it is interesting, you know, for me, the reason I was you know researching this concept of moral injury is because of a conversation I had with a pacifist who mm-hmm. was 
uh, also uh, just had retired from being a military chapman. Uh, I'm sorry, a military chaplain. And I'll link to that in the show notes. Go to protectyournoggin.org for both a link to uh, Dr. Kelly's book and uh, also to that older episode. But uh, for us, the original conversation for us was the way that this plays out in terms of uh, traumas and abusiveness within churches. Mm -hmm. But uh, at the same time, you know, I've had so many students that have uh, been through combat and that that comes into the conversation in classes and uh, and maybe they are now in their second you know chapter of life going into some kind of church work. Uh, now, in, in the case that I find myself in, I'm in a more liturgical tradition. You might be an Episcopalian or a Lutheran or maybe Roman Catholic where the texts that you deal with are not necessarily uh, all the texts. You're not necessarily reading all of the Christian Bible. You're reading the parts that, uh, you know, we will process through on a three-year rotation. And a lot of the stuff that you know a lot about and you've researched are texts that, you know, if you just work with a liturgy, you might not run into it. And I guess maybe uh, going a little bit off script here, but I, I'm wondering, you know, just like your mom maybe censored what you watched on TV, my mom certainly did. My mom didn't want me watching the nightly news. Uh, to what extent should we shield ourselves or even maybe younger students from these things? Or to what extent is it necessary to deal with the violent passages uh, in, in the Hebrew Bible? Yeah, I don't think there's an easy answer to that or just one answer to it, uh, because, again, so much of it is context based. Um, on the one hand, like you're mentioning the lectionary and things like that. I mean, that clearly that's a there's so many good things that, that, that come from those kinds of practices. Um, and yet, you know, clearly they do also <laughs> sort of limit one's exposure uh, with the Bible. I think uh, part of it is a question of, I think, of uh you know, I guess in a way, there's always the question of context. You know, who are you talking to? Because right. as we know, what these texts mean uh, is is a product of their intersection with readers and communities. And so, right. um, you know, you may not intend for, to be foregrounding something in the text, uh, but just based on who is who is there with you or who is listening to you preach or talk or who is reading with you or whatever it may be. Uh, those things may be being foregrounded in ways that, that you hadn't planned on. So uh, mm. I think part of it is knowing where you are clearly. I mean, any, you'd have to be a fool to say that developmental issues uh, shouldn't be considered when right. uh, thinking about how to engage particular biblical texts and all of that. So, yeah, I think with, with all those proper caveats in place, I mean, my argument though is always, you know, well, I'm a Protestant, uh, and so we have this weird idea of sort of like the, you know, the whole Bible is sort of <laughs> sola right. scriptura for the church and all that. So there's a level of honesty to be appreciated here, you know, to sort of right. say, you know, well, look, we just, these are the texts we have, and uh, we might wish they were otherwise or whatever, uh, but but these are the texts that we have. And so you can either try to address those things in a, in a foregrounding sort of way. Or, as I learned from my days as a youth pastor back when I was young, there'll always be that one kid in the back of the room who, uh, while you're trying to talk eloquently about John 3.16, uh, is looking up all the worst yeah. parts of uh, the <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah story and waiting to right. ask you about them in front of everyone. So I think to a certain extent, people know these texts are there, um, even if they don't know the details. Uh, right. They know there's problematic stuff there. 
So that honesty factor, I think, is important. But the other thing is, uh, you know, I think to a certain extent, it adds to the real lifeness of uh, of the Bible. Right. Uh, that that it, it helps, I think, to to get away from uh, the picture that some people have of sort of you know the Bible kind of fell from fell from the sky after God wrote it in heaven or whatever, and it kind of floats above the ground and all that. And this adds to uh, to the real life nature of these texts, showing that they, yeah, I mean these the ancient forebearers uh, in the faith whose whose traditions are preserved in these texts. Uh, struggled with uh, and endured and experienced some of the things we did. And I think a, a pretty good argument can be made these days that, uh, that the experience of exile and destruction and uh, those kinds of things uh, really were the indelible stamp on the literature that we now hold in our hands, at least of the Old Testament. So in some ways, the whole Old Testament is sort of trauma literature. I mean, you mm. can't get away from it when you mm. when you read it. So that level of kind of just being honest about what these texts are. Uh, but it's also, you know, I know, you know, when you when you speak or preach or teach about these things, you you probably are hitting on experiences that people have had in their life, uh, whether it's uh, combat stuff that you said or domestic violence or whatever. Um, so on the one hand, that's a call to be really careful and handle these things really sure. well. Uh, on the other hand, it's a call to sort of uh, acknowledge that uh, these these texts are there just as those experiences are there. Right, and, and they're, not, they're not disembodied abstractions, right? We sometimes right. in Protestantism, we like to systematize it put it into nice formulae and, and then that allows us to have a, a distance from the very, very visceral issues, you know, the, these things that are happening. Well, th- that takes us to this, this key question of moral injury. Would you, would you share with us what is moral injury? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so uh, the first thing to probably say is just that, you know, moral injury doesn't have just a single definition, uh, but it really is a, a label that kind of emerged really in earnest since about 2009. So it's, you know, fairly new, uh, but it especially emerged uh, within clinical psychology and veterans care to start with. Uh, and it really basically refers to a kind of a non-physical wound, a kind of uh, psychological, emotional pain and, and its effects, if you will, that results from the violation of uh, a person's kind of core moral beliefs, about themselves or about the world or about others. And uh, the violation of those beliefs can be done, you know, by oneself, like you could do things that violate your own core moral beliefs, or they could be done uh, by others, uh, things that are done to you or things that you uh, witness, uh, in whatever, just uh, so violations by oneself or others of a kind of person's core moral beliefs about themselves, about others, about the world. So you can tell that it was it was kind of originally developed for thinking about the moral effects of war and violence. So it's a little bit different than like PTSD or uh, trauma-related. You know, PTSD is sort of a fear-based victim response, you know, uh, that, right. that is dealing with the moral injury is much more on the on the sense of like, what are the effects of violence, the effects of war, either as a perpetrator, you know, you're, you're a soldier 
perpetrating violence or as one who witnesses it or one who experiences it? What are the effects of those things on a person's moral conscience, on their, on their ethical conceptions of, of themselves or, or the world? You know, what are the effects of it on, the, on a person's kind of fundamental assumptions about what's right, about how things should work in the world, you know, th- those kinds of things. So in, in essence, moral injury is kind of a kind of a working designation, if you will, that sort of highlights uh, certain kind of loosely defined effects of war participation, violence participation that aren't that aren't covered by by like PTSD and things like that. But uh, I have a friend who boiled it down, I think, in a really interesting way. He's a, a theologian and a veteran. And uh, he said to him, moral injury is, is basically about despair. Mm-hmm. The moral injury is a sort of despairing of oneself or of the world. Or it could even be a despairing of God, uh, for instance. But it's that sense that kind of the wrecking of a person's moral sensibilities about who they are, who the world is, who God is. And again, this can, this can often come through perpetration. But it can also come, especially one of the things they talk about a lot is betrayal, Uh, that witnessing, especially the betrayal of what's right or what one considers right, um, especially by those who are in authority, um, can 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 be morally injurious like this. Mm. So it's really interesting. Uh, It is only recently, like I said, it really began with veteran psychologists, especially actually in the V.A., uh, and but and it's just exploding in terms of literature on it, especially within clinical psychology. But I'd say in about the last five years or so, it's made its way over into theology, spiritual care, especially chaplaincy, pastoral uh, theology, those kinds of things, ethics and whatnot. Uh, and then a little bit more recently than that, uh, over into biblical studies. As people again and think about okay, what's the interface of sort of biblical interpretation with this uh, this sort of uh, moral injury idea? I think you had mentioned that there was a classical scholar that mm-hmm. had been looking at uh, the way this works out in the Homeric uh, epics. Uh, yeah, that was actually yeah. If I could actually pinpoint a place, I'd say that's actually the starting point of what we now know as moral injury. Uh, it was uh, er, about about the early '90s. There was a, it was actually not a classic scholar, but a VA psychologist mm. uh, named uh, Jonathan Shea, uh, who was working in I think out of the Boston uh, Boston Medical Boston University Medical Center, if I remember correctly. But anyway, uh, I was working with uh, VA vet uh, sorry veterans from the Vietnam War, mm. and he was. Yeah, kind of counseling them as you would normally do around PTSD and so forth. And that's when he began to say, I'm, I'm, I'm sensing some stuff here that doesn't really seem to fit with what PTSD is. It doesn't fit with what trauma is. It's something else. It's about morals. It's about ethics. It's about a, a wrecking of, the, of, of a sense of the world or oneself or what, you know. And so from that, he actually undertook this really interesting thing where he uh, did uh, basically a rereading of um, the Iliad and the Odyssey focusing on the characters of, of Achilles and Odysseus uh, as these morally injured uh, warriors who were trying to return from war. And so basically he wrote a couple books. Uh, one was called Achilles in Vietnam, and the follow-up was called Odysseus in America. 
And they were basically paralleling sort of a reading of those Homeric epics alongside the experiences of these Vietnam vets uh, in their, not only what they had experienced in Vietnam, but their struggles with uh, with homecoming. And so, yeah, the engagement with uh, kind of classical texts has become a major part of moral injury. And so, you know, somebody like me, I'm like, hey, I've got classical texts over here. Certainly, Maybe not stuff classical, but I've got, I've got ancient texts over here. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, one of the chapters in my uh, recent book is basically a rereading of the story of King Saul uh, in First in Samuel, uh, uh, as a, a kind of a morally injured uh, warrior, and uh, it's basically trying to do with Saul what uh, what Shea and others have done with with characters like uh, Achilles and Odysseus and and so on. Well, I was going to ask you about that uh, actually. So maybe just spend a little bit of time with Saul. Um, you know, here here's this um, character that I think you know as you as you look at various ancient texts. Sometimes I would I would describe something as either black and white or in color. And for mm. some reason, I, was, I just thought that Saul was, was very much a character that was in color. It was very mm. understandable, even though maybe not admirable. But what, what did you find when you were looking at the texts in, in 1 Samuel, for instance, about that? Yeah, that's really the starting point. Uh, you know, Saul is such an ambiguous character. You know, is, is Saul good? Is he bad? Mm-hmm. You know, he seems to do some good things. He seems to do some bad things. He seems to get screwed over. Uh, by just about anyone who can screw him over, uh, Samuel, God, himself, David, <laughs> his son. I mean, right. you know, um, so there's this long history in, uh, in biblical interpretation of Saul that has attempted to give these kind of psychological readings of Saul. So it's often been talked about, Saul's often been talked about as a, uh, a tragic character, uh, someone who has tragic flaws that sort of lead to his downfall, that kind of thing. Um, and so that was kind of the starting point. I was like, mm, well, I wonder if instead of talking about him as somebody who's, you know, psychologically disturbed or tragic, I wonder if what we're seeing in Saul is this picture of like we see with Achilles and Odysseus, someone who becomes morally injured by um, involvement in war, violence, betrayal, uh, some of it their own doing, some of it others. And then we see uh, what has often been pointed to as Saul's craziness or Saul's bad behavior or Saul's whatever. Could that be sort of the the consequences and the effects that we talk about when we talk about moral injury? So the first part of the chapter is basically saying, like, like what happens to Saul? Like, how does he get morally injured? And a lot of it, I think, revolves around um, uh, betrayal. You see him sort of put into no-win situations, um, and a lot of the texts are ambiguous. You know, uh, what were Saul's intentions? Were they were they sinister? Were they not? You know, when he sort of makes a sacrifice before a battle prior to Samuel's arrival. I mean, what? How exactly is it? Was it, you could read that in a more positive light, and yet when Samuel shows up, he gets harshly condemned for it. You know, uh, on the one hand, he's he, he's chosen by God to be the king. And then in the next chapter, uh, Samuel's giving this huge diatribe about how this whole thing represents a departure from God for the, for the people. And Saul's off to the side going, what the, what, 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 what happened? I was the, you know, and then I think the really interesting part though, is after you get past the first few chapters where you can see, and again, Saul is introduced to you as 
a combat person. He's introduced to you as a, this is about war and it's about violence and his story revolves around that. But once you get past the opening chapters of his story and kind of the betrayals and, and his own actions that maybe what you see after that through the rest of the, the stories is story after story of him uh, doing things like uh, seemingly becoming mad or losing social trust in relationships and uh, and doing sort of desperate acts and, and, and so on and so forth. And all of these, in some sense, fit with things that get talked about with regard to the effects of moral injury, the loss mm-hmm. of social trust and relationships, uh, sometimes uh, violence acts, uh, you know, breakdown of family structures. And then, of course, I think the thing that cinches it for you is uh, when you get to the end of Saul's story, sure enough, uh, Saul's story ends uh, with his suicide, right? which uh, is, is what we know is all too common, uh, especially among veterans, something on average of about 22 a day uh, committing suicide in this country. And now, you know, not all of those are related to moral injury and trauma, but, uh, but some of them are. And uh, so it, it really looks like uh, you can go back and give almost a, a sympathetic reading of, of Saul as one who struggles with the moral effects of what he experiences in war and then the consequences of that moral injury as you go forward through the rest of his his really difficult deterioration uh, that ultimately ends in uh, desperation and uh, and suicide. What about this other business in, a, let's say, a Christian tradition about forgiveness and some of the ways in which, at least from the conversations I've had, there is some discomfort within uh, a lot of my friends who are Jewish um, related to the idea of forgiveness not having to do necessarily with the, the party that's been harmed, but is a question that I ask as a violent person, perhaps, with my relationship to God only, right? So re- mm-hmm. whether or not I've, I've repaired or healed a relationship with, with the other party or nation or people group or whatever uh, that the, the violence was against, if I did something wrong in that context, I appeal to God directly and, and so forth. When you were looking at the question of moral injury and forgiveness, did you did you find anything there that that might be helpful? Yeah, I've got a chapter in the book actually on lament, uh, kind of moral injury and the biblical lament tradition that sort of goes mm. around. It gets into a little bit of forgiveness, although lament isn't just or perhaps even primarily about uh, forgiveness in the way that we would think about it. Uh, I think there's two things that moral injury and, and moral injury does use the word of forgive the, the, the language of forgiveness. Some, some of it does, some of it doesn't, some, some of it, um, excuse that language, you know, deliberately, but, uh, and I think partially for the reasons that you just said, um, but two things that I think moral injury does that are helpful for forgiveness for those of us who've come up maybe in more Protestant and even evangelical traditions where often forgiveness is what you just said. You know, I did something and I just, oh, God, forgive me. And okay, now I can just go on. Um, what moral injury does with forgiveness is really interesting. On the one hand, it attaches forgiveness to the notion of uh, self-empathy in a way. So it, it, it's, remember that moral injury is assuming a person is morally troubled by either what they've done or what they've been involved in, 
or what they have experienced, uh, or maybe what they were forced to be involved in by no means of their own, or maybe they thought they were getting involved in one thing and they ended up being involved in something else. Here I'm talking about military experiences, um, for instance, in Iraq after 9-11. This is something we hear from veterans a lot. Right? I feel betrayed. Right. I went over there to do this. And when we got over there, it turned out this was something else. You know, um, So they, this idea of being able to forgive oneself is not, it, it's not about, uh, okay, I'm good. You know, it's about beginning to realize that, you know, not everything was in your control or at least full yeah. or yeah. you're to blame, but you're not, you don't bear 100% of the blame or uh, you were, you were in a context where this was a bad choice and you should own up to that bad choice, but it wasn't like there weren't things that got you there. Uh, So there's this element of, can I come to the sense of, I can still have a sense that maybe I did some stuff that was bad. I can own that. It's not a way of shirking responsibility. Moranjri is very clear about that. But it's the difference between, you know, to use the old fashioned way of putting it, I think the difference between guilt and shame, you know, can I I get to a place where I say, okay, I did some bad things, but that doesn't mean that I'm a bad person, you know, to use the colloquial way of talking about that. So self-empathy, that's one thing it does. It really tries to reframe forgiveness. I mean, yes, there's certainly religious expressions of this, forgiveness from a, from God or from a higher power. That's part of it, but it's also self-empathy. Here's the other thing, though, that I think is maybe even more important for what you said in terms of what forgiveness often is in our traditions. The other thing that moral injury always does is it attaches forgiveness or self-empathy to what they call uh, acts of repair, Mm. moral repair. So there's this element of not just, you know, seeking pardon or seeking self-empathy, but being about repairing the moral goodness of the world. Now, sometimes that means you can actually do something that's directly related to the morally problematic thing you were involved in. But especially for soldiers, a lot of time, that's not possible. You know, like you, you can't go back to that village you were in in Kandahar or wherever. Uh, right. You know, that, that's not really possible. But there are ways that you can engage in acts of moral repair uh, right where you are or in your community or in your city or in your world um, that, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, try to make the world a better place, you know. So there's that sense of you have a you have an obligation to do those things, but it's also that that's part of healing. Mm. It's not just pardon or forgiveness or mm. self-empathy. It's also how do I begin to to capture, at least in some small way, that maybe there is good in the world. Maybe the world can be a place that has moral goodness to it. And those little acts of repair, whether it's, you know, a little community action or, you know, right. some element of service, whatever it is, are, are part of that. And of course, we see this in the biblical tradition, I think, throughout the biblical tradition, despite what's happened to it in sort of Protestant evangelicalism sometimes, uh, does not present forgiveness as, you know, you just sort of go down, bang your head on the altar and, you know, you're done or whatever. I mean, it it always links it to this idea of be reconciled or, 
you know, do, doing these kinds of other things that go with it. So in that sense, I think this is part of the biblical tradition that is, is, can be just recaptured and maybe moral injury provides a lens onto that uh, to help with that recapturing. I dig that. So you're, you're kind of looking at it not so much as paying off bad karma as much as that idea of the repair of the world and that does seem to fit very nicely there. Where is there anything else that that you pick up in these texts? I mean, any anything in the in the Old Testament where uh, there is something for the listeners to kind of latch onto in terms of the move towards healing. What what are some of the maybe specific places that that you might turn someone's attention towards? Yeah, I think uh, two elements, and I do talk about both of these in the book, although I don't want to seem like I'm just shilling for the book all the time, uh, but it is what I've been sort of thinking about. Yep. Um, but I think two elements, one uh, that was has really been a part of the discussion of moral injury, uh, even to the point that a number of clinical psychologists from the beginning who have no real connection in any way to religion or religious studies or biblical studies have pointed to um, one is the element of uh, what we would, for lack of a better term, call rituals. Uh, The idea of embodied practices that can be um, a means of both kind of maybe trying to prevent moral injury, but also trying to uh, deal with it in a way after the fact. And so uh, this is something that, of course, is, is you know, much more wide-ranging than just the Old Testament. But in terms of Old Testament, you've got really interesting collections of various rituals related to especially post-war, post-battle kind of stuff in the Old Testament. And so now the Old Testament doesn't give you an explanation for these rituals. Like it doesn't say, okay, here's why we're doing this or whatever. It just gives you sort of the practice. It does it. But they're tied to sort of the post-battle, post-ritual scene. So uh, one of them that I think is really interesting is in Numbers 31, which, I mean, I'm sure everyone was just, you know, up reading. <laughs> it's highlighted I, for me, yeah. Yeah, I know you were, Malison, for sure. Uh, <laughs> but uh, And it's not a text that has unproblematic elements in it. There are lots of problematic elements. But one, a couple things that are interesting about it, they're coming just back from war, from a battle, And there's this ritual purification that happens where anyone who was involved in battle, anyone who killed in battle, et cetera, et cetera, has to sort of go through this procedure. They have to stay outside the camp for X amount of time. You have to wash, you know, this and that, and your weapons and all this. There's this, there's this almost, and again, it's not spelled out in the text in any way, but um, uh, there's almost this uh, kind of, I guess you would say acknowledgement there that uh, that this you're coming back from something that that needs purification and it's inviting them and it's not individual it's sort of as a group right community you you go through this this symbolic purification to sort of say I'm acknowledging that even if what I did was what had to be done or even if it was justifiable and we can have a whole different conversation about you know pacifism and just war theory and don't get me started on just war theory but anyway uh it'd be you know we could have that concept but but it's it's that way of saying even if i have decided that this was a necessary evil it was still an evil yeah it was still something that i and and so it was a way to allow them to acknowledge that but also to have that sense of purification from it Mm -hmm. perhaps um and so there's a there's a, a several different kinds of rituals and and communal lament after war is uh 
prevalent in a, in several places in the Old Testament in ways that we don't really pay attention to. You know, so there, there's these ideas of are there rituals, are there embodied practices? I'll give you one from your wheelhouse. You might know this uh, in the history of Christianity. Um, a really interesting book. Actually, uh, a few years ago, uh, more than a few years ago now, anyway, uh, but there was that was looking particularly at uh, the practices of sort of Christianity and medieval Christianity, especially around the time th- frame of the Crusades, things like that. And it was an exploration of how the church uh, kind of handled, uh, for lack of a better term, sort of soldiers or something like that. And it was taking yeah. you through that these early Christian texts from some, you know, pretty notable uh, names that you would recognize from the history of Christianity were saying, okay, you, you know, if you came back from war, you, you, were, you were barred from communion from X amount of days and time and you know and there was a penance process and there was a you know so there, there were these these elements of sort of saying there are embodied practices and rituals that we can go through that can help people recover uh but also you know acknowledge very honestly uh what they've been involved in but then also maybe think about um how to move beyond that so I think rituals is is one of the places that we can go, and that's not limited to the Old Testament. Um, I always think about um, you know the season of Lent being something that's underutilized, underexploited for these kinds of things of kind of recognizing the brokenness of the world, but then also being able to move through that process to a to a healing, to a sense of moral repair and rejuvenation. Um, the other one, honestly, uh, it, I think, is the, the Bible's lament tradition. As you think about the what's involved in lament being, uh, first and foremost, honesty, uh, that you're, you're willing to be honest about uh, what you're experiencing, what you're feeling, all of that. And the piece of that that I would add to it is I think the overlooked piece of the Old Testament's lament tradition is that lots of those laments are communal laments. Yeah. So that the idea of, in, if, of dealing with morally difficult situations that you have either <laughs> caused or you have experienced or whatever is, is not meant to be a, an individual task. It's something that you do together with other people um, and ideally with perhaps a community or a, a congregation or a something, but it, it's meant to be something that's done uh, in a communitarian kind of way and in a communalized sort of way, rather than trying it on your own. And so that element of the communal lament, uh, and as you know, many of those laments have this movement that move from kind of lament to praise in them. So it, it doesn't just kind of leave you part. So rituals, I think just looking for embodied practices, whether those be those moral repair kind of practices or other things, uh, maybe even rituals from the the biblical tradition or the Christian tradition, alongside the practice of lament, uh, especially communal lament, which is wrapped up in the idea of honesty. You, You cannot move past, and this is hard, right? But you cannot move past any kind of morally injurious events without being honest about them. And that's the, the Bible's kind of lament tradition in a nutshell. 
Oh man, that, that is, that is so perfect for what, what we're about on this podcast, because I think one of the things, whether it's people that have been students of mine that came back from combat or students that have experienced abusiveness in the churches, it's, it's not just the things that they experienced. It's the way that others had a difficult time processing Mm -hmm. whatever that experience was for them or for the community. And one of the ways that we tend to deal with these things as a species is very unhealthy, but we just pretend it didn't exist. We just deny right. it. Right. And so, you know, you get somebody, let's say, comes back from combat, they're either ignored, the whole story is ignored, and nobody wants to hear it, which may be yeah. unhelpful. They're going to get spit on, which is unhelpful, or, you know, metaphorically or literally, mm-hmm. or, um, or they're going to be getting the hoorah high fives from people that didn't realize how painful that experience was. And so they just want to hear because it's you know, under the mask of patriotism or whatever, they just want to be congratulatory. Uh, we're in the midst, right now, Stacey and I, of course, are in the midst of our season, focusing primarily on the Tao Te Ching. And there's a wonderful chapter there where mm-hmm. it, it basically, uh, uh, Lao Tzu basically says, if, if, your, if your neighbor encroaches on your territory uh, by a yard, step back. <clears throat> if you have to fight, then maybe you have to fight. But always approach war as if you're approaching a funeral. Don't go in as if it's a party. And I think it, I, I have not served, so you know I don't know for sure. But at least anecdotally, what people have told me is that inability to land with anybody that's outside of the military experience on an honest, to use what you're saying here, an honest approach is part of the problem because you can't you can't process it. It's kind of this this wide scale gaslighting about, you know, denying things that are, um, you know, really poignant to, to an individual. So I think that answers, you know, one of the big questions I had, which is, you know, what's a big takeaway for people that have experienced any kind of moral injury. And for our concern for students who have experienced abusiveness in the churches, their, uh, their fear or, or their, that despair that comes when the leadership seems to have dropped the ball Mm. even if they weren't immediately responsible, can really, I think you're right, can really only be repaired in some kind of way that's not just symbolic, but at least provides a symbolic experience where the whole community Mm -hmm. recognizes their guilt, maybe not shame, but their guilt in allowing things to take place through what we've discussed on this show, um, that that psychological, social psychological phenomenon of moral or or of systems justification theory, Mm -hmm. which is this idea that that everyone's so excited, you know, so enthusiastic about the mission of the institution, the church, the denomination, the school, that they think in some sub- subconscious way that they're doing the right thing by hiding. Uh, when in fact, the as you're seeing here, the Old Testament and and the Middle Ages, or oh, link to link to that book as well, provide these opportunities for people to be able to experience that that moment of cleansing and renewal. I think that's that's fantastic. I'm, I mean, I really like what we were talking about earlier on. That there's a way in which these things that we might enjoy, scholar, you know, these scholarly things that we enjoy for their own sake, are also uh, to in, in the long run to apply to the human mm-hmm. project. You know, and I think you've you've done that very well. So, friends, I want to take a break here, and if. Uh, you came here just to hear about moral injury and the Old Testament. That's, uh, that's what we've got right here. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kelly. But what I want to do afterwards, this is a little bonus. After the break, many of you listeners are interested or are in the world of 
academia. And some of you are thinking, hey, you know, I really enjoy religion. I enjoy philosophy. I like the you know, biblical studies, and I'm good at it. So maybe I'll make that my career. Uh, what I want to do is after the break, I'm going to just chat a little bit about what you need to know about that kind of career choice and, and that vocational trajectory. And uh, we'll tentatively call it uh, Dr. Kelly and Dr. Mallinson are going to smash your dreams. We'll be right back. <laughs> mentioned uh, a guy that I consider like the, the, the Jedi master, Dr. Frank Ames. Uh, he just a great guy, provided a ton of wisdom for me as a, as a young academic in a, in a kind of funky situation. Uh, but one of the things about his biography as a stellar scholar, editorial role at the Society of Biblical Literature, um, really a, a, a strong, strong scholar who also lamented to me at, at a couple points, uh, you know, over lunch, that when he decided to go to college, his dad said, well, that's a great idea. Go for it, <laughs> right? His dad hadn't been to college. He didn't come from a family that really was able to help him decide what kind of college to go to. And so I think he went to either the Denver Bible Institute or Rockmont, one of the predecessors to Colorado Christian University, and he could have chosen a different track. He, would have, he was smart enough, and he knew it, but there were certain things that he did, he said, that kind of cut him off early on from, from the widest possibilities uh, that he could have had as a, as a scholar. And I experienced the same thing. I was, you know, really interested in these texts in my high school youth group. And I said, well, if this is something that I'm having fun with. Might as well study this in college because I'm interested. But no, no one really along the way kind of gave me any of those important insights into you know, what's the best way to proceed with that and what to be thinking about as, as far as career goes. And you, you add to all that, you know, when, 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 Frank was, when Frank was going into this, there were a lot more opportunities to teach at the undergraduate level, um, seminaries, and, uh, and grad schools around the country. And increasingly, that's a, that's a difficult proposition. It's not the case that they're just, you know, people are just going to hand you a, a tenure-track gig once you get out of uh, your, your terminal degree. So I want to talk a little bit about this. Um, what would you, just to start off, what would you say right now to anybody that was interested in, in biblical studies in particular as a career choice? Right now, people are just opening various kinds of alcohol and beginning to drain. <laughs> Even Nazarenes. Kind of, not Nazarenes. <laughs> okay. Grape juice. Grape juice. Okay. What kind of intro was that? No. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's true that, uh, you know, these are difficult times uh, job market-wise. I mean, I, I think you've got a couple of things you always want to you – know, it's a weird balance, right? On the, on the one hand, and again, I'm going to sound Protestant and even somewhat evangelical here probably, but I guess that's okay. Um, on the one hand, I mean, if you feel a certain compulsion or what we might say a calling or something uh, to a certain line, then, you know, I think you, you want to still go after that. You want to still. I agree. Yeah. Um, I think you want to be open to the fact that that may morph 
um, you know, you can attest to this more than I can. My trajectory has been more straightforward than yours, but, um, you know, it, it may take different forms. It may develop. It may change. I mean, but, but I do think, you know, I, I don't want to sound too naive or whatever, but I do think if, if you're just kind of like a glazed eyed fanatic about it, then, you know, you, you'll, you'll, you'll find a way through, uh, in some sense. Now it might not be the ideal track and what you always wanted and, you know, all of that. But, um, so there is something to be said for, you know, follow your passion, follow yeah. your call, do what you go love. after it, do yeah. what you love, right? You get one life and, and you might as well try to do something meaningful with it. Um, so you got to take that. And then I think you do have to balance it, uh, with, uh, the realities. And so, um, you know, the, the realities, and this is the thing that I think is particularly difficult. Uh, and it, I, I don't know how it is for, you know, I think it's different for other, you know, religious studies and, and other kinds of, uh, thing. but, but for Bible in particular, um, the, the places, the universities and seminaries that have, uh, significant Bible curriculum, curricula tend to be, uh, your uh, your more conservative sort of Protestant evangelical tradition type uh, undergraduate schools and seminaries, right? Um, and so, on the one hand, I think you have to, if you want a job in Bible, I think you have to know that while it is possible that you may land a job at Union Seminary in New York or uh, you know wherever uh, that is outside of that bubble. Um, in all likelihood, you know, where the jobs are in Bible is at places like Concordia or Point Loma Nazarene University or Azusa Pacific, to name the ones that are around us here in Southern California. Right. Um, these are Christian liberal arts universities from more conservative evangelical traditions. I mean, there's a spectrum there, obviously. but mm-hmm. um, So I, I do think in some sense you have to prepare yourself for that. And I mean, prepare yourself on the one hand to say, you know, is that who you are? Uh, right. Because, you know, you do want to be true to who you are. And there's ways, I think, to find your place in that, even if you don't, you know, your identity doesn't line up exactly with all of that. Uh, I mean, whose does? Um, but uh, so is that who you are? But also, uh, can you can you teach in those places? You know, can, can you, you live there? Yeah. Effective and live. Yeah. Live there. Can you survive? Sure. Can you flourish, but also can you be effective? Um, and you need to know that going in, that that's where most of the jobs are. Um, and, I, you know, a lot of people, I think, will be down on that. But, I mean, uh, I guess the other way of looking at that is just to say, you know, there aren't that many people who are interested in Bible in the world today. Uh, and the ones that are uh, tend to come from those traditions. Now, they may not all stay there, but they tend to come from there. And so there's something about, you know, being willing to work with the people who are interested uh, that, that I think you have to bear in mind as you go. But, uh, but I do think, you, you know, you have to know it's difficult. Um, if uh, job market is obviously shrinking, um, if you can diversify yourself in terms of what you can do, uh, that's, uh, that's also useful. Obviously, if you bring some diversity to the table, that's also useful uh, in terms of who you are. Um, you know, but, uh, you can't always do anything about that, but, right. uh, but that helps as well. Um, so I think it's weird, but you kind of want to have this balance of <laughs> like, uh, go after it, you know, pursue what you feel called to, 
but also bear in mind the realities and and that um, you know, in all likelihood, you're not going to get rich off of it uh, by any means. Uh, but you may also have to sort of, you know, navigate it into some ways that maybe you hadn't initially thought that it would it would look like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it rewarding. I like the lifestyle. I like the uh, you know the, the open space in summers, for instance, and sabbaticals to be able to do creative work. There's a, there's a lot to commend it. And uh, one of the things I'd add to what you said, you're spot on, is that not only do you find yourself looking at most of the, the, the career possibilities within uh, this group, the, the CCCU, the, the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities, um, but you also have to be aware of uh, even more narrow considerations. Uh, for instance, right out of when I, when I completed my terminal degree, I uh, had the problem of having opportunities to interview at several schools, and the, the the first conversation was was very quick, and it was shut down quickly because of certain shibboleths or litmus tests. For instance, there was one university that asked if I was a dispensationalist and believed in the rapture, and I said, "Well, of course not. I'm a I'm a Lutheran, you know." And that was the end of that conversation, right? Sure. Um, and so, not only do you not only would you say, well, there's, there's the conservative liberal aspect of the spectrum, but there are also ways in which different universities are going to care about different things. For instance, at a Concordia University, we're much more interested in somebody's asserted doctrinal positions and not so much about their, their inner testimony. And a lot of Christian universities will interview you and ask about your testimony. Mm. Uh, some places that are more on the Wesleyan side of the tradition aren't as concerned about the fine points of the doctrine, Mm -hmm. but might be more concerned about whether you drink and cuss, which is kind of a religious thing for Lutherans. We drink and cuss as a, as a show of (laughs) our religious fidelity sometimes. Right. And to show that we're not pietists and we're not damn Wesleyans is is usually how that goes. (laughs) I like that. I thought it was damn Calvinists. How did we get We we don't don't like them either. But the Calvinists, the Calvinists will have a scotch with us, and you know that that goes a long way sometimes. Well, we we will we will uh, we will sit with you while you drink and silently condemn you. We won't do it. <laughs> yeah. Now you don't need to worry about all these things. And sometimes people, you know, they they come into their undergraduate program, they're just excited about this. They might have newly converted to Christianity, and it's just hey, they're Christians. But as much as that's a wonderful, maybe uh, ecumenical spirit that you're coming to this with. It is important to realize that a lot of this also is going to be tied to church bodies. So mm-hmm. you're, you know, you're you're not going to have an easy time in some seminaries if you're outside of that tradition. That yeah. may not be true with the more, uh, let's say, liberal or progressive seminaries. But then again, they also seem to not have as many positions available. And there's there's some like in our case, the uh, like Luther Seminary, which is more of the, the main mainstream Lutherans there. Um, declining in terms of the the positions they're kind of contracting and so you know it's just important to know those things going in know whether you have that connection and also in my case know whether or not you're required to be trained for life in a congregation so some Mm -hmm. some traditions don't want you to just come in as a know-it-all academic they want you to be connected in some way to to actual church work yeah i think that's really important i mean if you're going to teach bible um, if that's what you want to do, I mean, there's a really good chance, as you said, you're going to end up in a church affiliated school of some kind. 
uh, even if it's not a denominational school, it's going right. to be, you know, associated with various kinds of church life or church, you know, whatever. Um, and so I think, um, you know, you may not, uh, but but if you're going to be, uh, for lack of a better term, sort of a secular biblical scholar, um, you know, that's possible. You certainly can do it. Um, but that's a very that's a different trajectory in a way. Um, but, you know, but the good news is, I mean, if you know, it's a step by step thing, I think. Um, yeah. And you have the possibility at each step to kind of either bail out or go in a different direction, you know. So, I, I, I mean, that's my my best advice would be, you know, I guess twofold. One, take it step by step. Do your undergrad. Okay, let me see about master's. You're in your master's. How's it looking? What are you interested in? What are you capable of? You know, I, I just wouldn't be capable of, of uh of doing what would be required to get a job at a place where you really didn't teach Bible. You sort of were part of a history department or you were part of right. a Jewish studies department or whatever. You know, I just don't have those strengths and I don't have that training now, but the reason I don't have that training is that was my strengths and I didn't pursue it. So I think just taking it step by step and seeing, you know, how am I fitting in with this? Where am I being drawn to? What are the, and then take the next step, you know, the doctoral mm-hmm. step. And can you do that? And then, you know, so on. So I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is you just you have to go in knowing that teaching at a place like a Concordia or like a Point Loma or any place is a delicate balance between uh, the mission of the university and your own uh, kind of integrity as a teacher and a scholar. And, um, you know, you have to always balance those things in some way. Uh, and, and it's always going to be like that. And, uh, and it may not be, you know, and some, and, and, What's the right way to put this? Well, it's not only fundamentalists either. I mean, uh, it's oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. There, there are orthodoxies. Sure, you know, there's certain there's certain avenues where people are saying, hey, maybe you don't want to go down that route, and, and you won't know, you yeah. won't know till you get there, right? You know, in a lot of cases. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, and I guess here's the thing I would say most of all: if you're looking forward to a career in an institution like the ones we're talking about, or really any institution, yeah. um, institutions are living organisms that change, yeah. uh, you know, fairly rapidly, uh, surprisingly, you know, you usually think of institutions not changing that much. And in some sense they don't, but in other ways they do. And especially if you end up at a small, you know, Christian liberal arts university or whatever, I mean, places like that um, often are very leadership dependent. Yeah. Uh, if the leadership changes, the, the entire culture of the place can change in a short amount of time. Now, not every place is like that, but many places. Um, and so I think just just knowing that, um, you know, institutions are unstable. They change and you have to be able to change along with them. And certainly we're all witnessing that in a in an unprecedented sort of way right now. Yeah. Uh, but but even without the extra stuff that's there. Um, and so, but, you know, I, I just want to say, you know, it's easy. I, I have found this and I don't want to fall into this trap and I, I'm sure you don't either, but whenever I do talk to younger folks about this, um, <laughs> I think people who are in our shoes and in our positions, which are admittedly pretty privileged positions, yeah. I mean, I'm sitting in a, in a, you know, I'm a tenured faculty member at a university, um, uh, tend to talk only in negative terms. Right. <laughs> right. And, and it is true that the realities are difficult. And it is true that the realities are more difficult now than they were in the 90s and the early 2000s when I came up. Um, and 
when I uh, finished my PhD and had more than one job offer, when I wanted to make a move and had more than one job, I mean, it is a different day uh, yeah. now. And so th- those things are all true. Uh, and this is a much more difficult day now for uh, small universities and seminaries and you know, financially and otherwise than it was 20 years ago. All that is true. <laughs> however, uh, however, uh, this is a great line of work. And there, there's really nothing is. hardly at all more rewarding, I think, maybe than being in the medical field, which, of course, comes with its own challenges. But uh, and, and it really is a special thing. Um, but it is one that I think you should feel called to it or whatever, whatever language you want to use. Uh, around that because it's such a long road to get anywhere to begin with. I mean, you got to go down the path of the graduate degrees and the whole deal, you know. Uh, so that, that's number one. And then number two, it, it's a long and winding road that doesn't, it does not have a lot of stability. I mean, even if you have tenure, it's still not, I mean, you know, your university could close for crying out loud or something. Right. You know? um, so you have to, I think, but, but if you know that stuff and you kind of, I mean, that's my biggest piece of advice is just know, try to get as full a picture as you can of what you're getting into uh, before you get into it. And that will help build some resilience uh, to to make it through the times when it, it is really difficult. I couldn't agree more. What you said there, plus the idea of going in knowing that you will have to be, you know, early on kind of directing, you know, which which path you, you want to go down, you know, what, what's your, what's your end goal is going to be important. I, I think, I think that's very, very helpful. I'd also add that, you know, there are a lot of people that I know that are really good at the scholarship, but maybe they don't realize how important it is to be an, an effective teacher in a classroom yeah. where you're teaching, you know, f- you know, four, oh, yeah. uh, you know, good. three or four sections a semester. And for those people, I've often said there, there are, I, I think what you said, the best part of what you said was um, was to be open to maybe new opportunities that you didn't conceive of at mm-hmm. first. So, for instance, you know, I know folks that were really discouraged because they couldn't get a, a teaching job. They weren't very good lecturers, but they went to Switzerland and were doing critical editions of, of 14th century, you know, editions. And, and they're happy as can be in their library setting with other scholars drinking coffee. And they, they hadn't thought of that or people that are interested yeah. in paleography and maybe they're going to be working with a publisher and they have, you know, that, that side of things. And so, and so, you know, that being open to that, being open to not having a research one university position at the end of it, even if you went to the highest level uh, in your own life is important too, because, you know, that, that's a, that's a big, that's a big thing. Now I, my one last piece of advice from, for me is um, I really enjoyed Oxford University. I think the, the the advantage at just the the experience, the level of the experience, uh, it couldn't be beat. I was able any day to just look up all the graduate seminars. I could hang out with world class scholars. I could go into smaller reading groups with grad students. I could go into you know big lectures. I could go to the debate hall and see you know famous you know politicians. But the thing that I had a great deal of trouble with. Um, is that no one, and no one really clued me into this is that because of the way the Oxford Cambridge model works, 
I don't have a I don't have a transcript, so I can't even really teach. I I, I studied paleography, medieval paleography. I can't teach at some community colleges because they don't know how to put the code in for me. And uh, secondly, I did not have as much teaching experience, so that when I got out, I wasn't already somebody who had been teaching for, uh, let's say, somebody at a, a research one university where they could then, you know, say to somebody else down the you know down at the adjacent state. So you went to Emory, am I correct? That was yeah, that's Emory? right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and uh, and that was in the United States, and you planned to stay in the United States. So that that kind of helped very well in history, which is where I'm situated now. I'm mm-hmm. telling a lot of students, especially these days. I do want to encourage them, just as you're encouraging students to do biblical studies, uh, if it's their passion. I am encouraging them to consider. At least for the PhD, that if they cannot get it funded, if they cannot get something where they have a stipend for the research or for uh, teaching as a TA, that they probably should use that as a signal that they're that they should probably stop at that point. Maybe they stick with, uh, you know, being an adjunct uh, for for the reward, you know, the personal reward, or uh, working for a community college. But just as far as the, the kind of choosing of a of a PhD program, I'm not sure that's the same advice I would give to somebody going into theology or biblical studies, because I don't know of many funded opportunities. But could you speak to that a little bit? Like, how, how would you choose a grad school for a PhD? Yeah, that should be its own show. You should, yeah. show on, <laughs> you should just do a show on that and get about three or four people from different fields yeah. uh, on there with you. Because it, really yeah, it really is different for different fields. I mean, that is one thing I really would want to stress, you know. Uh, but within biblical studies, yeah, I mean, I think in biblical studies, um, schools in the U.S. tend not to look that favorably upon European PhDs. Right. Right. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind. Um, it's not impossible, but it's just it's not as harder. Yeah, it's just looked upon as a, a kind of a second tier kind of deal a lot of times. Mm-hmm. For, for you know whether that's right or wrong. Oh, I know. Yeah, that's um, exactly right. So that's one thing to keep in mind. I think, yeah, there there are uh, there are funded uh, PhD programs. They're mostly at the top tier stuff. Your you know your Emory, Duke, uh, Princeton, you know places like that. Um, there are uh, there is sort of a second tier level of PhD programs that might have various levels of funding. A lot of these are at seminaries, um, you know, like a Garrett. Garrett Seminary or, you know, an ILIF uh, in Denver, you know, these kind of places, uh, mm-hmm. SMU, SMU, TCU, I'd put in that. So there, I think you could think in terms of sort of levels and you could check them out to see, um, you know, what the different opportunities for funding are. Uh, most of your top tier schools like Emory, for example, are only going to accept two or three students a year in that program. Um, so, uh, it, you know, but that's what I would look, I would look at different levels, you know, kind of a, a level B level, check out what the fundings are. The other thing I would check out though, uh, is, is, uh, uh, curriculum, you know, what, what are you going to do while you're there? You know, what, mm-hmm. what, what's it actually look like? Like what are the classes you're actually going to take that kind of thing? Um, I would definitely look at that because, you know, you want to, you want to find places that, that will fit you, um, but will also fit what you're interested in, knowing that those interests might change, of course. Uh, but at least a general sense of who's there and what are you actually going to do while you're there. Um, and then I think the other thing I would do is I would, I would kind of think about, I mean, in, a, in some sense, grad programs in biblical studies are credentialing 
So it doesn't, on the one hand, it's not super determinative for you. Um, you know, like I, I, I came out of Emory, which is known as one of the more, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, sort of liberal programs. And I got a job at a pretty conservative place in Colorado Christian, for example. So um, I, I don't know that, you know, that, that in some sense it just determines who you are. Um, so that's true on the one hand. On the other hand, though, uh, it will provide you with, in some sense, your network, if that makes sense. Uh, that's right. Yeah. So uh, I think it's important to sort of, uh, you know, uh, who are their graduates as much as you can, whatever. Uh, but here's the one thing I will say. Above all, if you, because I, I run into this a lot out here in Southern California, I'm sure you do too, uh, for those who are listening elsewhere, if you don't know this already, people never want to leave Southern California. So uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. this, is the, this is the thing, right? If you're serious about this and you really, 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 really want to do it, um, you're going to have to be willing to go, uh, go where the programs are and then go where the jobs are. You know, I, right. mean, I, I was a Georgia kid. I went to college in Nashville. I didn't want to go to Denver for that job. You know, and I sure as heck didn't want to go to San Diego for the next job. You know, I've only right. been to California one time in my life before that was for the Rose Bowl parade. You know, I mean, so uh, but but I think you got to you know, that's one thing that it, I know it's hard and it's not fair and it's all of those things. But you got to be willing to go because the opportunities are um, so limited. Mm. Spot on. Thank you so much. You're right. I mean, maybe one of these days we'll get together a show, get some get some other uh, friends and colleagues out and and go through all those sorts of things. Because like I said, uh, no one really explicitly told me in my undergraduate life, certainly uh, what that would look like. Uh, One thing I forgot to mention is that if you're really comfortable with the network of your your church affiliation, Mm -hmm. then even, you know, going to a, a seminary Ph.D. program might not help you for some career opportunities, but it certainly could help you if you're also willing to uh, focus on your educational life being internal to a denomination. And that's always a possibility. You can edit, you know. Yeah, I might just add with that. I mean, I think one of the things that is a good piece of advice is if you are in a tradition and and you plan to stay in that tradition, whether or not you end up teaching at one of that tradition's universities, um, I, I, I do think really good advice. Like if that is part of who you are already, keep that as you yeah. go forward, uh, find a church. You know, I, I would, I, I'm ordained in the church of the Nazarene. Um, I think, uh, when I left undergrad, uh, one of my professors told me, he said, when you get down there to Atlanta and you get to your master's program, find a church, a yeah. local church of the Nazarene. Cause that's what I was and what I wanted to be. And he said, even if you can't get on staff part-time, just volunteer. You know, stay in the church that whole run and it will help you uh, going forward. And and that's absolutely true, especially given where the Bible jobs are. Uh, They want for a lot of those places, they want people who are involved in in a church of one kind or another. Uh, So I would say uh, cultivate that, keep it, stay with it, volunteer, do all that. But I want to go back to one thing you said real quick. I know we're about to run out of time, but I just want to say you hit the nail on the head on one thing. And you will have to probably do this for yourself more so than anyone will help you do it while you're in your programs and stuff. Learn how to teach. Figure out how to teach. Because, and it's not just lecturing, like learn how to teach in all kinds of different ways. 
Um, because this, you know, make no mistake that yes, there are about 1% of the jobs in biblical studies that are in research one universities. Uh, but 99% of the jobs in biblical studies are in teaching universities. This is a teaching career. That's Mm -hmm. what you're getting into. And ideally it's one that fosters scholarship as well. But I can tell you right now, I've been on committees. I've watched it happen with people who were incredibly qualified and incredibly bright scholars. couple published monographs, you know, they're walking in. Put them in front of 40, 18-year-old freshmen, and it was a disaster. And like it or not, (laughs) uh, you know, we probably didn't say this before, but at most of these colleges, if you're just, again, just talking biblical studies, I know it's different for history and stuff, but although it's not that different in the liberal Not that different anymore, no. But, but, you know, most of what you will teach if you end up in a place that's a private Christian liberal arts university is general education Bible. You may have some majors, you know, like here at Point Loma is a good example. We have about 3,000 undergrads. Um, we have about 65 majors in the School of Theology. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I teach upper division classes, and yes, they have five to ten people in them. <laughs> but yeah. uh, the vast majority of what I teach are uh, general education, intro to the Bible, or intro to the Old Testament. So, so I, I would just say most grad programs, I mean, it's better these days than it was, but most grad programs do not include a lot of built-in opportunities that teach you how to, to teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so learning how to do that. And honestly, if you're a church person, the church is one of the places where you can do that. Yep. Preaching and teaching in a church is not that different from the classroom. Uh, and so, you know, it's one of the positives of that. But you've got to... You've got to hone that crap. And the, and the opposite is true as well. We, we just hired someone here in Old Testament, uh, an ABD person who wasn't finished. She's finished now, but she wasn't finished. And she was very young, obviously, still in her program, had, you know, had no real publications to speak of. She was in a great program, but no real publications to be. But what we put her in the classroom was brilliant. And we were like, oh, we got to have her. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's what we want. She's going to finish and she's going to be fine as a scholar. But what she has, you know, you got. It. So I know to a certain extent, and I mean, I know you know this is true too, John. I know to a certain extent that teaching is an art uh, in, in a way you, you know, you either have it or you don't have it. Uh, right. But you can, you can improve. Like you can learn yes. strategies. You can develop, You can become a good classroom teacher and, and be able to do it in more than one mode. Be able to teach a 40, mm-hmm. 60, shoot, at CCU, I had a 100-person uh, intro class. You know, be able to teach yeah. a lecture class and be able to teach a five, a five-person a seminar class. And you don't have to be able to do it all at once. But, I mean, just, right. you know, practice those things. Learn how to teach. Get some reps in. And what's nice about the thing you're mentioning about with uh, the churches is that sometimes, not always, but uh, sometimes that's not a captive audience, right? People could say, you know, I don't want to come on at nine o'clock anymore to hear <laughs> this guy droning on about Leviticus. And, yep. and so to, to be interesting enough, that's, that's, one, that's one key theme. And the other thing for me is, you know, everything that my wife and I are doing now flows from uh, a renewed passion for education in a specific area, primarily because of that engagement with students in, in a concrete way. So having... Mm-hmm having those opportunities to actually 
you know, know what the students are actually asking. What are their crises? What are the, the things that will, will connect with them? And that's going to go, it's going to go a long way. Brad, thank you so much, man. You're the best. I'm so glad we could reconnect. I want everybody Absolutely. to make sure you know about, again, the Bible and moral injury, reading scripture alongside wars, unseen wounds, the Bible and moral injury. That's a Abingdon in 2020. And didn't, now I didn't mention, did you have a, 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 an additional book where you were editing other uh, essays as well? Yeah, yeah, there's a brand new book. It's uh, the link's up on Amazon, actually. Um, but it's a big collection of psychologists and biblical studies and theologians and ethicists and all that. Uh, that's called uh, Moral Injury, a Guidebook to Understanding and Engagement. And uh, it's just, it's being released on August 30th. Uh, pretty pricey, but I think there is an ebook that they're going to release with it too. But a uh, nice collection, uh, basically an interdisciplinary connect collection around, uh, again, a guidebook for understanding and engagement. I might also say if any of your uh, listeners are really interested in moral injury, a lot of online stuff. Uh, there's a few centers for moral injury that are up and running. Uh, probably the most notable one people could check out. Uh, is actually at uh, Volunteers of America, if you're familiar with that mm-hmm. organization. Yep. Uh, Volunteers of America has a, uh, a center for moral injury. So if you just kind of throw it in your Google machine, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you'll find it. And, uh, and they got lots of online stuff there. And then the other big one is uh, actually at Bright Divinity School at uh, Texas Christian University. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have an online center uh, called uh, the Soul Repair Center. Uh, which is basically a center devoted to moral injury. So uh, lots of good uh, online resources and stuff that, that folks can find if they want to get more into that as well. And I'll put links, all these links up at protectyournoggin.org under this show's uh, show notes. Again, Brad, thank you so much. Yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll uh, talk again soon, my man. Thank you Be so well. much. Take care. All right. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP. And rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said that wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter low too much.